Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather today to study your word and to have our hearts prepared by your spirit for your coming. Bless our study, Lord. Um, enrich us and kindle within us a greater hope for your son's return. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I want you to take a look at this graphic. I realize it's kind of small, so uh, my apologies. But I came across this this week. It says, who Americans spend their time with? It says, Americans 15 and older are spending a lot more time alone than they did even in 2013. And the trend started before the pandemic. So if you can't um, quite read it, so that first line, the orange line at the top, says alone. And down the blue one says with friends, and the red one with companions. And it starts from left to right, 2013 up through 2021. You'll notice that now, come 2021, look at how it has absolutely skyrocketed. The number of hours that folks 15 and older are spending time they're spending by themselves versus with friends, with companions. I mean, that really bottomed out, obviously, with 2020, but then it's continued just a downward trajectory over the last number of years. And, of course, um, here at Trinity Lutheran, we've really talked a lot about loneliness and how we're seeking to combat loneliness by bringing uh, people together in Christ. Uh, but I also want to ask, apropos to the text we're going to look at today, if people, and especially young people, are spending more time alone, who is influencing and molding them? Uh, the preacher here in Hebrews is going to talk about the importance of imitation and learning from others. But if people are spending more and more time alone, and especially young people, who's influencing them? Who's molding them? How are they being formed in faith? Or are they being formed at all? What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Social media and YouTube, especially, okay. I think. Social media and especially YouTube, Leslie says. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that spending a lot more time just on the Internet. And so influencers, right? Who are you being influenced by? Influencers, right? This is a whole thing. You ask um, some kids these days, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an influencer. Well, okay. I want to be a YouTuber. Actually, I've heard that that's one of the most popular future jobs. And uh, Some of the guys here are like, well, yeah, of course, I want to be a YouTuber. Lewis, I'm looking at you. But uh, now, what, so what are, what are other factors, other sources of formation and influence? Yeah. Well, I have a question with it along trying to answer what you're asking, and that is when you're saying they're alone, they're alone flesh to flesh. Right. But they're not alone at all in terms of social media. So sure, they're right. connected. Yes. So they're probably being influenced heavily by their friends. Okay, indirectly being influenced by their well, peers. Through, yeah. Through electronic means. Through electronic means. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Matthew. Uh, something that might also change, like friends might not exactly be the same. Yeah. Not some people not might not have as much of a filter online. Sure. So influence from that type of stuff and friends might not be as positive. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The, those influences, even if they're person to person, they're not necessarily positive ones. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Pat. You said social media, the TV and movies, which the content has changed drastically. Yes, right. Yeah, and so for sure, other forms of media, especially TV, uh, where now you can just be streaming stuff all the time, you know, binge watching, whatever. And so those things can be and are very formative for us in ways that often fly below the radar, right? Because and research has borne this out, that when you're watching a TV, when you're watching movies, many times kind of your, your forward critical thinking brain sort of shuts off, 
and you just ride along with, with the story and its mores and the values that it's co conveying. And so that can be very formational, especially for the young, but for all. Yeah, go ahead. I would even include the news a little bit because the news has become so much yeah. shared with opinions along Yes. Yeah, news is kind of an anachronistic term, isn't it? Right. We have opinions that go under the, the banner of news in many cases. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, any other sources of formation or influence that if people aren't being formed by others, yeah? Music. Music, sure, yeah. And again, music, not necessarily a bad thing by any means, right? But it, it can be. If you're, just, if you're just by yourself, I remember when I was probably 17, 18 years old, I kind of had this, this little dark period. It didn't last long, but uh, I was listening to a lot of music from this one particular band that had the, the themes of it were pretty dark and not getting out enough. And it starts to impact you, starts to influence you, yeah. Don't worry, I back to my sunny self. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, that can be the case. Well, listen, we're gonna be digging into Hebrews 6 here and the preacher's going to talk about why it really matters who your influences are. Uh, but before we get to that, we're gonna come back to the section we just started on last week and touched on, what Martin Luther calls this hard knot of Hebrews as I shared last week in case you weren't with us, that this section in particular, verses 4 through 6 of Hebrews, was uh, the primary reason, along with the fact that we don't know for sure who the author of the book is, um, why some folks in the early church spoke against its inclusion in the Bible at all, the book of Hebrews. Um, now, ultimately, that was overcome. Those situations were, were rectified, or at least there was a, a settling with it. But um, there's no question that these verses are really challenging. And so let's tackle it and talk more about this uh, theme that it lifts up. So we're in Hebrews 6. I'm going to start again with verse 4. For it is impossible, he says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Whew, all right, there you go. Uh, the uh, preacher in those preceding verses had talked about spiritual maturity, and he lays out now why is spiritual maturity a necessity? Because, number one, under part two on your handout, because apostasy is a possibility. Maturity is a necessity because apostasy is a possibility. And uh, I mentioned it last week, but let's go ahead and turn there to the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus sets this out. This is kind of his programmatic parable in um, teaching the disciples, look, this is what life is going to be like as you're going out and scattering the seed, the seed of the word of God, just to say proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Here's the kind of reception that you can expect and to a certain extent why you're getting that reception. Um, so I'm just going to read a, a section of it. It's kind of a long section, but um, from verses 11 through 15. Jesus says, Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They, they believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, 
They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not, what? Mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. So Jesus kind of lays out, and this is a rough and ready taxonomy. He says this is kind of the kind of reaction that you can expect, the response you can expect as you're scattering the seed. And there's the first one, which talks about the devil taking away that seed. We can talk a lot about that. I want to um, leave that conversation for another time and focus on these next two. He says, listen, there's also those who, receiving the word, receive it with joy. They believe for a little while, then testing comes, they fall away. And then likewise, there's those who it's scattered on the, the rock, or what, I'm sorry, the thorns. And they hear, they go on their way, but it's choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And the fruit does not mature. This is very much in view what the preacher's talking about in Hebrews 6. As for those who, these are these, these two middle seeds, if you will. Those who have heard the word, received it for a while, believed, and yet for lack of that maturity and that deep rootedness in Christ, whether it be testing comes or even just the cares of life, the anxieties of the world, draw people away. And I find it especially interesting, that latter one, he says, for a while they are believing, but the cares and riches and pleasures of life, they choke it out. Now, how do those things choke the life of God's word and keep it from maturing? What is it about riches or cares or even pleasures that keep that word from maturing in the hearts of, of God's people? What do you think? Yeah, I'm sorry? They become more important. Okay, so they become more important. And so they take precedence in your life and don't uh, give room for the, the word to work. Yeah, ma'am. I think it also confuses your source of strength. Confuses your source of strength. Yeah, that's right. Especially when it comes to um, possessions and these things where you think, okay, this is the, the source of my strength, my security, and in that way it can choke out the word. Yeah, Bob. It's uh, a time issue as well. A time issue as well. Say so more. if I spend... I'm so busy pursuing these things, I just do not have time for God. Yep. Uh, so it's just, uh, I mean, as simple as what do you have time for? And if you're pursuing these things so much that you don't have the time for the Lord, then that's going to affect it too. Yeah, Bill? There's also immediate gratification. Sure. Uh, if, if you accumulate money and then it gets you something, it, it becomes a cycle. Yep. You know, well, I, if I just had a little bit more, then I yep. could get a little bit. Yep. No, just a little bit more. Right. That immediate gratification. I think that's really important, too, in this context where Jesus says the one that, the, the soil that really matures, the seed that really matures, notice this. It hold, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. With patience. So key to spiritual maturity is that it's going to take patience. I've said before that to grow up into a mature discipleship means that you're going to be less like a, a chia pet and more like a cherry tree, okay? Because remember the chia pet? Ch -ch -ch chia right? You just add water and immediately the thing starts growing. I mean, it's creepy and weird, but it was popular when I was a kid. Uh, versus a cherry tree, which how long does a cherry tree take before it starts maturing? Sam, I've asked you about this before. Seven years. Seven years on average, Right? That's more what we're talking about when we talk about the maturity of faith, holding it fast with patience and endurance, stick to itiveness. If you're just looking for that immediate gratification, then you're going to get disappointed and maybe disillusioned. It's a real danger when it comes to the life of faith. 
So to the contrary, we need that spiritual maturity in order to keep us going when those times get tough so that we stick with the Lord rather than turning away from him. Now I want to draw your attention too, going back to Hebrews 6, to how he's pointing out, well, he's going to have a negative thing to say in the course of it. He lays out how number two, under part two on your handout, the people of God are blessed with countless gifts and have a privileged status. He just starts rattling it off. Those who are enlightened, which maybe and probably is an allusion to, to baptism, who have tasted the heavenly gift, the Eucharist, no doubt, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, and tasted the, the goodness of the powers of the age to come. That's you. For those who believe in the Lord, these are the, the manifold gifts, and many more can be listed as well, of those who belong to God. But all the more reason why it makes apostasy all the more unthinkable, the preachers say. Those, it's, this is why it's impossible. For those who have tasted, who have been down this road, now apostasy just becomes utterly unthinkable. Ezekiel 18, going back, kicking at Old Testament here. Ezekiel 18 says, When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he's done shall be remembered. For the treachery, and that's the word for apostasy here, treachery of which he is guilty and the sin that he's committed, for them he shall die. We need to underscore this point, that apostasy from this perspective is not merely falling away, but it is even more so treachery. Because you have been called and claimed by the king of kings, And so to turn back on him, to turn away from him, is treasonous. There's no neutral space in the spiritual realms. There's no spiritual Switzerland, right, where you can just flee to. Again, Bobby Dylan had it right. You got to serve somebody. You may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but everybody's got to serve somebody. That's the way it is. And so if you are turning away from Christ, even unwittingly, I'm not saying that every person who falls away from faith says, hey, where do I sign up for that Satan guy, right? But it's the sad fact that there isn't a neutral space, right? Jesus says, you're with me or you're against me. We don't like to hear those lines drawn in the sand. It sounds way too challenging. But we need to understand that's what's at stake when it comes to our discipleship, our life of faith with Christ, Um, And so, similarly, Jesus says in Luke 11, he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus is saying, look, It's all well and good. Somebody's cleaning up their act. You know, somebody says, hey, you know what? I want to kick the drink or I want to clean up my life. I want to, you know, turn to better things. That's awesome. Uh, But if Jesus doesn't come to fill in the void, some other idol will. And it might not be something that looks like a vice. It might be something that looks very good. But something or someone is going to occupy the heart. There is a throne there that it's either going to be Jesus there or it's going to be the self or something else. Again, hard words from the Savior, but I think important words for us to hear. And once more, from Matthew 5, Jesus says, You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I mentioned here, um, and I, I might have referenced this before, but the book and the film Silence by Shusaku Endo, the whole drama of this story, it tells the story of missionaries, Catholic missionaries in Japan in, I think, the 1700s, and the temptation for um, some of them, many of them, to recant, to apostatize from their faith. And uh, what they do, what I guess this was historically accurate, the, the novel's kind of a historical fiction, is that uh, the, the Japanese leaders would ask for these Christian missionaries to trample upon the face of Jesus. And in so doing, recant and renounce their faith. Which has echoes and resonances of this from Matthew 5. Jesus says, no good for anything to be trampled under people's feet. Now, again, these are, these are hard words, and I'm giving it to you full bore. The preacher is going to, to bring things back here, too, but I don't want to um, sell short the danger and what's at stake with apostasy. So let me just pause there for your questions or clarifications and comments about that thus far. Sure. I heard, I think it was Chuck Swindoll speaking once about this verse of, in Matthew about yeah. salt. Like he said, now I was studying this and remembered enough from chemistry class that <laughs> salt doesn't lose its saltiness very easily. And so he was struggling with this salt tastes salty a long time. Yes, right. But he kind of went to the conclusion, like we started out class, um, how do you get stuff mixed in? Because he said that's when salt loses its saltiness. Mm. When it's contaminated with mm -hmm. other things, you can't use it anymore as a preservative or Very a seasoning. Good. So the way we started class kind of comes full circle. Yes, that's right. In, with that illustration. Yeah, that's good. That's very helpful. You guys hear that? Uh, those other things that get mixed in that start to dilute the salt, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, David. Pastor, I think, I think these words are uh, incredibly hard. But it's also because we face a hard and relentless enemy. Yes, that's right. That will not give up. Right. And although we have the victory, yep. um, he's going to constantly be fighting. Yep, that's the war has been won. Yep. There are battles. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. The war has been won. Jesus has the victory through his death and his resurrection. But Satan is keep coming at, keeps coming at us to try and win the battle of individual souls, to try and pull people away from their Savior. And he will not stop until the time that Christ comes again. Yeah, Ellen. I've noticed good people I've seen who struggle in this area that they, um, they start to believe that there's, there's Jesus and they're saved and then there's themselves. And they get confused and they say, well, Right. And if there's a battle and you've got one team or the other and they believe, no, this is me. Right. And it's not the other Yeah. Uh, so um, Ellen's saying is, uh, for, I think for, for a lot of folks, I think any of us can be led to this um, viewpoint where, well, it's not so stark as that. There might be Jesus, devil, but there, there's me. And me, I'm a very sensible, smart person. I, you know, I, other folks get led and pulled into things, but I'm able to oversee that. I think we need to be careful not to overestimate our own personal wisdom or strength, right? And any of us know this if you've ever tried to go on a diet, right? That's a good way to humble yourself. You're like, you know what? I'm just going to demonstrate how strong I am and, and disciplined. And then it's like, now where did I hide those cookies, right? You know, uh, we like to think that we've got what it takes, 
But when it comes down to it, if we don't lean on Christ, if we don't have that Christ dependency, that Christ sufficiency, we're easily susceptible. Marks for the evil one, for sure. I've run into a bunch of people that good works is their God. Right. Because of their, you know, their, their, their thinking is, oh, we, Christians need to be good and everybody else needs to be good. Right. And then they focus on doing their good works. Right. But don't focus on Christ. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, can good, good works... Good thing? Yeah, well, of course. But can that become its own idol and end in itself even? Yeah, it can. I mean, there. if it sounds like there are landmines all over the place, there are. Okay, Pastor, give us some good news. Pete's like, I'll get there in a second. I'll get there in a second. But this is, this is why, um, so he says here, uses this word, it's impossible. It's impossible. In what sense does he mean impossible? Um, I've, I've wrestled with this. I've read a lot of folks on this. Um, who suggests that he means a kind of pastoral impossibility, a practical impossibility. That is to say, for all practical purposes, human purposes, repentance is impossible for apostates. And somebody, Hans, it might have been you, brought up last week the example of Simon Peter versus Judas, right? Because Judas apostatizes. He turns away. He betrays the Lord. And then later, he, he has some inkling that he wants to come back even, that he wants to repent but he finds within his heart, it is too hard at that point. And what does he do? He ends up taking his own life. Now, compare that, though. Contrast that with Peter. Peter also seems to betray the Lord. He denies him three times. And yet he's able to come back. So what's, what's the difference there? The difference may be what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 7 here. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 says, he compares godly grief and worldly grief. It says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So that all Judas had left was that kind of worldly grief. He'd gone too far. For all practical purposes, coming back to the Lord was simply impossible. Now, that could be. That could just be me trying to leave open um, a, a glimmer, a hope of possibility. Um, but I, I think we have to uh, remember um, and square this verse and passage also with the rest of the scripture, with the New Testament, remember, with God, nothing is impossible, right? So this isn't the one thing that's impossible, impossible, right? God is still God. But I do think this is saying, for all practical purposes, when somebody has, who has gone the way with Jesus and turns around and slams that door, can they get it back open? It's devilishly difficult to do so. Right? And I use those words specifically, yeah. Well, you brought up Judas and, and the Lord Jesus, I mean, and Peter. I think one of the powerful things for Peter is more than once Jesus comes back to find him. Yeah. Even the night he betrayed him, is it Luke's account that says Jesus looked at him? Mm. That's a tremendous moment mm -hmm. for Peter mm -hmm. because the Lord is wooing him back. Right. And then John 21, he specifically goes and finds him and does heart surgery on him. Yes, right. But seriously, had the Lord Jesus not chased him, what would have happened to Peter? Right. If just because I think of all the disciples, he says, I'm the one that blew it. Right. And this is where, so this is, well, I, I want to go a little bit further with this next section, but I think with Peter, another thing along those lines, Bob, is uh, the angel announces and, and says to uh, um, the disciples when they come that uh, Jesus says, go announce to his disciples and to Peter. 
um, Peter is singled out as one who had basically become a non-disciple. But Christ continues to seek him out. All right, so let's transition then to the good news. And this is, this is important. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay. Now, this is where I think it's important, um, that context of remembering that Hebrews is in all likelihood a sermon. Okay? So let's just talk a little bit about some of the mechanics and the engineering of, of sermon. I talk about this with the confirmation kids. Maybe not, don't do it enough in Bible study and just in continued catechesis. Um, as preachers, we remember that we, every, each and every week, each and every sermon, we want to speak both God's word of law and his word of gospel. All right? Both of those things. Everybody say, law and gospel. Law and gospel. So these two big, big picture words of God. Okay? So the law is God's word of thou shalt. It's what you must do. The law is what shows us our sin and afflicts the comfortable, as it's often said. The gospel, on the other hand, is what shows our Savior. SOS is why I teach the confirmation kids, right? The law shows our sin. The gospel shows our Savior. The law says, thou shalt do. The gospel says, it's already done. Uh, the law afflicts the comfortable, whereas the gospel comforts the afflicted. Now, if we think about that in terms of Hebrews as a sermon, you're going to have both law and gospel in the context of the sermon. So within the context of a sermon, there's going to be preaching where you are really seeking to arouse and awaken the conscience of the hearers, right? To prick their conscience, to, remind the, to be reminded of the, the power of God's law and the fact that, yes, I do need to repent. I need to continually flee to Christ alone as my Savior. But then any preacher worth his salt is not going to leave it with the law, but he's going to bring the balm of the gospel, right? And so notice how the move that the preacher is going to make here suddenly, starting with verse 9. And because if you don't have this in mind, I think you read these, these following verses and you might think, this guy's totally schizophrenic. He's all over the place. But notice this, starting with verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise, promises. Okay, having heard those verses, in, in this whole section, what would you say is the preacher's goal? What is his goal for his hearers? What does he want for them, his, his purpose? Looking at both this verse and the preceding verses in context, what do you think is his goal? What's his upshot? What does he want for his hearers? For them not to be lazy. For them not to be lazy. Bingo. This is, this is his goal. So you think of it this way. You take a step back and you think, okay, the preacher is looking at this uh, congregation, probably in Rome, um, and as we've talked about before, they're enduring persecution and opposition for the sake of the name of Christ. And many of them are starting to become weary in the life of faith. Their knees are becoming weak, it'll say later. And they're starting to wonder, is it really worth it to stick with this Jesus guy, right? He sees these folks and he wants to admonish them he wants to encourage them. And so his goal, especially in these few verses, but I think in large part, the, the book of Hebrews as a whole, is to say, don't be sluggish, right? Don't think 
that you can't fall away from the Lord. Now, he also doesn't want to leave them in that place where they're you know, anxiously wondering about their salvation. And so you notice in verse 9, he makes that quick move. He says, we, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, notice that tender word there, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is textbook law and gospel preaching, right? He's going to flip, afflict in order to comfort. He's going to um, kill in order to make alive. And this is how God works. To give just a, a few examples I mentioned here from 1 Samuel 2, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Again, Job 5, he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. And once more from Hosea 6, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. This is the MO of our God. This is his modus operandi. This is the way that he works. He brings low, not to leave us low, but in order that he may lift us up, right? He kills to make alive. All right, I threw out a whole lot there. So questions or clarifications, comments about this law gospel and that way of, of working. Yeah, go ahead, Matthew. So in the way that when someone is persecuted and they may be torn down by others, God is also there to bring them up yeah well. absolutely okay. right so we um, when we are laid low not just by the lord's word but by the world there the that's where we need the gospel where god wants to come in in order to raise us back up right and to give us his good news and say you are still my child take heart right you know like jesus says in john 16 in this world you'll have trouble but take heart i've overcome the world right both law and gospel there yeah let's see the Hosea uh, passage reminds me of the uh, Lion, the Rich, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. Wow, one here. I'm not sure which book it is, uh -huh. but where the boy is turned into a dragon. Mm -hmm. And then the lion comes along and he literally strips him down, yeah. scratches it up, yep. gives him a new uh, yes. skin, but yep. he has to endure the pain of having that yeah. body stripped away. It's painful, us. right? Like we talked about in the sermon today. It, that, that repentance can be painful, right. productive pain, but it's, right. it's still painful. Yeah, that's a great image. Anybody remember what character that is? Yeah, it's Eustace. That's what Eustace I thought. The Don so, and this is a neat thing with uh, C.S. Lewis, who always has more going on here. So the, the name is Eustace, Eustace Scrub, right? Yep. It's yeah. an all-timer in literature, right? Eustace Scrub. Now, what's uh, really interesting about this name is it sounds the same as um, the Latin word, Eustace, as in simul Eustace et peccator, that great Latin saying, which means simultaneously just and sinful. Um, so Eustace, in particular, uh, like justice, right? We've got some folks related to the name justice, is ju uh, the just or righteous uh, saint. And so Eustace calls to mind that kind of saint and sinner sort of guy. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think it's just a, a little Easter egg that Lewis is leaving in there. Because that character really embodies that struggle that um, we continue to have as believers. Yeah, Christine. Oh, 
want to go back to the, the lazy factor okay. and tie it into Luke with the sour. Oh, sure. Um, that's become lazy or complacent that I'm saved, I'm good, and not continue to spread the word. We should be thirsting and hungry and bring other people to faith yeah. with us. Yep. But also to remember that we're sowing seeds. We may never see the fruition of yes, it. Yes, that's right. But we should always be planting seeds. And yep. don't get just like, oh, I'm good. I'm good, yeah. No, continue to be busy about it, knowing you might not see the fruit of it, but that God is still working in and through it, which is a good uh, segue to the, the next um, point on the handout here. Number two, under part three, God does not neglect the good work that he has begun in his saints, right? So um, the preacher says in 6 verse 10, God's not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God has started this work in you and through you, and it's not for nothing. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 10, Jesus says that whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he'll by no means lose his reward. Right? Even something as simple as giving a cup of cold water, it's not lost on the Lord. You might not see the fruit of it. You might not see how that little one benefits from that cup of cold water. But still, it's a blessing. Still, it's a gift in ways that are even beyond our knowing. And then here's one to really make you Lutherans feel a little uncomfortable from Revelation 14. Uh, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, "Blessed, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now, that's why I say it might make us a little bit uncomfortable, because as Lutherans, rightly so, say, no, I'm not justified by my good works. I'm justified freely by God's grace. 100% true. But does that mean that all of the good works that you do do, or that God does in you and through you, are all for naught? It's all wasted? No. That God rejoices in those steps of sanctification that you're taking right now, the way that he is working in you to renew you. It's very similar, right, to Matthew 25, another passage that can make us uncomfortable. The sheep and the goats, right? When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. Well, when do we do these things? He was already working in you and is working in you in ways beyond your knowing. Yeah, man. Um, back in verse 6 where it talks about... Um, in Hebrews? Yeah, uh, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Yeah. I think that concept of holding him up to contempt has been lost somewhat more recently because you know that is what our failings do in this life. We how often are Christians call it hypocrites? People don't want to show up because of the way they've been perhaps mistreated. Or, sure. You know, and so I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. You know, as we are going about doing our thing. Certainly we fall, but, you know, to, to think about those consequences, too, of, of holding Christ up to contempt. Right. I mean, uh, you know, in the, the, the commandments, um, so the second commandment, you shall not bear the Lord's name in vain, right? And to think of it like you carry the name of Christ, right? You bear his name. Uh, don't do it for nothing, right? Seek to, seek to be faithful in your vocation. Seek to honor him. I'm reading through Ezekiel right now in my devotions. Pray for me. 
Um, it gets dark at times. But one of the recurring themes in Ezekiel is he, uh, um, the Lord says through the prophet that you guys are dragging my name through the mud because of your idolatry, because of your, your turning away from, from the Lord. And so, yeah. Now, specifically here is talking about if you're a if those who apostatize, so those who bore the name of Christ. So this goes especially to those, like last week we talked about um, the guy Josh, Joshua Harris, who's pu publicly now refuting Christ, and that there's these folks who are like, have these deconversions and are trying to evangelize, um, ironically, people away from the faith. That is a, a, especially the case that holding them up to contempt. But also in our in our day to day lives, we seek to be to honor Christ, to bear His name well, lest it be dragged through the mud. Yeah, thank you, ma'am. Yeah, Hans. Yeah, we used to have a coworker. She was from uh, Beijing, and her favorite thing to say throughout the day is Jesus Christ. All right. And, and it's like. I, I walked, it sounds like she was very prayerful. Very prayerful. Well, I walked into her office after hearing this a few times. I said, I'm glad to hear you're praying. <laughs> and she said, what? Yeah. Well, I, I worship that Jesus too. Yeah. It's like, she was probably taken aback by that a little bit. Yeah, so she stopped doing it. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, and I, you know, the patience of our Savior the patience of our Lord, that he continues, he allows his name to be held up to contempt and to endure this, to continue to be dragged through the mud. And I, I won't give any spoilers with um, that book, Silence, which I really recommend you read. Um, that, is, that figures prominently in that story as well. Um, the Lord who in his mercy um, permits himself even these things, his infinite patience. It says in 1 Timothy 1, Paul writing to, uh, uh, to Timothy, he says, listen, I was the, the chief of sinners, and yet he called me, precisely because I was the chief of sinners, to show as an example of his perfect patience. Now, is that an excuse or reason to be complacent then, or to purpose, much less to purposefully drag it through the mud? No. But just, that's ultimately, this is the long gospel tension, right? It's ultimately why we lean on and cling to the mercy and patience of Christ. Yeah, Bob. Well, if we take the first part of what you were sharing, the law thing, and it frightens the daylights out of us. Right. That's your Holy Spirit working powerfully. In yeah. Because if I've really come to that place of apostasy, I wouldn't care. It's I exactly right. I couldn't care less. That's exactly And that's what it means to condemn or to hold him up to derision. I mean, there's, there's crowds in front of the cross, right? And there are those that weep for him and, and probably weep for themselves, recognizing I put him there yeah. against my heart. There are those who put him there. So you want to be king of the Jews, we'll make you king. In other words, we can't wait to get rid of you. Yeah. We have no time. For, we don't want you. I mean, that's a totally different place than just sort of floating away from God. There's an intentionality of saying, I don't want you right. in my life. Right. Yeah, you, you made an important point, which is if you are feeling this, if you feel convicted by this text, good. <laughs> that's, that's a sign that you are not one of the uh, apostates, right? Because it's God's Holy Spirit convicting you and working in your heart. Um, I think sometimes, like uh, I heard uh, one uh, preacher say, sometimes we make the law just try to gum us to death rather than to take the bite out of it. 
where we try, try to take the real sharp edge off of it. We say, oh, you know what? You know, God says, ah, oh, just don't be too bad of a person. Like, no, you need to hear the full weight of the law. You need to experience that in order then to come to Christ, right? He doesn't want to gum us to death. He wants to kill us and bring us back to life in full. And so I think it's important to remember that, that if you're feeling that conviction, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. All right, so then to, to build off the point that Christina had made, number three on the handout, there's no place for complacency among the elect. There's no place for complacency. Complacency is not contentment, right? Contentment is a faithful resting in God's finished work. Contentment is a faithful resting in God's finished work. I'm not talking about contentment. I'm talking about complacency. Complacency is not resting in God's finished work. It's just resting in your own being finished. Right? <laughs> it's just um, saying, all right, I, you know, I don't need any more. I'm pretty good. Everything's good. Uh, Jesus tells that parable of the, the great banquet where the man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything's now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. Right? Complacency makes excuses for why I can't follow Christ. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, a, a passage verse worth studying at length, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. And notice this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. For this very reason, because you've been given everything already, because you are one of Christ's elect, make every re for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then Peter goes on to say in that passage, and so make your calling and election sure. Not calling an election sure with God, it is sure and certain, but so that you might have that assurance and certainty even more, that uh, an added assurance that comes from your standing before the king as you continue to, to strive after him. Complacency has no place among the elect. Yeah, Leslie. The verse, uh, the Luke passage, um, is somewhat of an answer to people who say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. Right. You know, because... You know, he's saying, you're invited, come. Yeah, come. And you don't come. Don't neglect the feast. I mean, that's... You're putting yourself into, into a danger zone. That's right. I was looking at the, the new brochures out for Camp Arcadia this next summer, and uh, Pastors Bruzik and Just, their topic, the topic is, the answer to almost every question is, go to church. <laughs> that's the title of their topic, which that might not necessarily be the case. I think they're overstating it, but for a fact. But... Um, yeah, it's a real challenge. Folks, you think, I don't, I don't need to be in church. I can do all right on my own. I mean, it goes back to that opening graphic, too, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm all right on my own. Ah, don't be so certain. Right? I, I could worship God in my, I mean, I can go out in the meadow where we've got yep. wonderful property, beautiful right. property out there. I can worship God there because he gave me all yep. of this. Or, again, I can sit in my PJs and watch the live stream, whatever. I don't, don't need it, but... Um, Man, we, you need to be in the fellowship of the baptized, receiving the body and blood of Jesus. Um, now, we don't stay here, right? Then we get sent back out. And why do we get sent back out? So that we can cajole, harangue, <laughs> admonish, encourage 
those other ones, as now the servants sent from our Savior, come to the feast. Come to the feast. Yeah, that's right. All right. So then, finally, the preacher lands here in uh, Hebrews 6, this section. He says, I don't want you to be sluggish, but instead, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So I say here that imitation is an antidote to inaction. Imitation is an antidote to inaction. Look for those, those saints that you want to emulate their life and faith. Reading biographies can be great in this respect. Read a biography of Martin Luther or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Read a, a biography of Corey Ten Boom. Read a biography of these great um, uh, saints of the faith that can encourage you and spur you on. You want to emulate them. You want to, to follow after them. Uh, Song of Songs, I in include this verse here because church fathers would point to this as uh, kind of spiritually speaking, um, speaking to this imitation. It says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. What does that have to do with imitation? Well, follow in the tracks of the flock. I like that. Jeremiah 6 Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Look for those ancient paths. Look for those saints who have gone before you. Follow in those well-trod paths. All right, so then in conclusion, just two notes, and they've been, kind of been touched on here already. First of those two takeaways, the preacher provides good news, especially for scrupulous Christians. <laughs> and John Klein puts it this way. He says, it's true that Hebrews 6 offers a stern warning against deliberate apostasy. But that's quite helpful pastorally because it puts a significant issue on the agenda for members of the church. It's not uncommon for scrupulous Christians to feel that they are damned because they reckon they have committed an unforgivable sin, most often a sexual sin. This text discounts that, for by their contrition over their sin and their eagerness for full reception of forgiveness, they demonstrate their repentance. So they're not among those described by Hebrews 6.4. Instead, this text helps to clarify where they stand before God and to encourage them to return to their baptism and receive pardon for their sins. So here, Dr. Kleinig is really um, echoing what uh, Bob had said as well. That yes, this is a stern word, it's a hard word, but we do well to hear it because it's calling us back to repentance, that precursor to the kingdom. Is it painful? Yeah, it's painful to hear that, to turn from our sins. But once again, it's productive pain. And then finally, baptized into Christ, there's really only two directions we can move. Tom Long puts it this way. He says, one cannot stay still in the Christian life. One must always be moving. And there are only two directions in which we can, one can move, deeper or adrift. Either we keep growing, maturing, becoming more profound in our faith, or we're content, and I would say complacent would be the better word there, in floating lazily along the surface, unaware that the treacherous currents are pulling us more and more off course until we're hopelessly lost. Again, there isn't a spiritual Switzerland to hang out in. We're growing deeper in our relationship with Christ, or we're drifting away from him. I think it uh, calls for all of us to hearken to those words. And again, Advent's a good season to be doing that, to be questioning and challenging ourselves, but then ultimately resting in that finished work of the Lord who has come to call and claim each and every one of us. Whew. All right.
lot there. Thank you guys for your uh, patience and attention and participation. Next week, we'll continue in Hebrews chapter 6. Thank you.